Welcome to the Tuesday night podcast, the Failing Forward podcast. I have with me tonight, Lisa Moore. She is a sub two student who has done house hacking successfully and escaped her job as a analyst. So welcome, Lisa, to my show. Thank you, Landon. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So house hacking. I first learned about this with the Bigger Pockets podcast. Brandon Turner, uh, that was talked about a lot. I was always fascinated by it. Why don't Why don't we just jump right into it? What's your story? Okay, so um, yeah, I started house hacking in 2017. So I grew up in Massachusetts. I moved to Utah in 2016 and knew that I was going to want to buy a house and knew that I didn't want to have to pay for all of it. So that was really my main motivation was how can I cut back on my living expenses? Typically, your living expenses are your most expensive item. Most people are paying anywhere from a third to half of their income on their living expenses, whether that's rent or mortgage. So when I bought a house, I knew that I wanted to find a way to reduce that expense. And house hacking for me was the perfect solution. So I bought a single family home at the time. You know, I couldn't afford a lot of house. So I had a two bed, one bath, 777 square foot house. So it was... It was a tiny little house, but it, it worked. Funny. I rented a, rented a bedroom on Airbnb. And that was back when Airbnb was renting a bedroom in somebody's house. Wow. So one of the really cool experiences and stuff that it's evolved into now. Um, but that gave me that additional income that I really wanted to reduce my expenses while still being able to own a home and start building that equity and having that wealth building assets. So, yeah, for sure. So, how much space were you living in compared to whoever was renting from you? So they rented a bedroom and we shared the rest. So we shared the bathroom, the living room, the kitchen. Um, so they, they had access to the house. It was, it was a small house, so it wasn't really, couldn't really block them out of places. So um, yeah, they, they had access to everything. And I did the Airbnb because I didn't want a full-time roommate. I yeah. knew when I had friends and family coming to visit that I wanted that uh, that bedroom for them to be able to stay in. So the Airbnb was perfect. I could block it off when I wanted to, and I could rent it out when I wanted to. So it gave me the flexibility that I that I was looking for. Sure. So so you so did you say seven hundred and change? Seven hundred and seventy seven square feet. <laughs> that is tiny. That was tiny. Thanks. Yes. I mean, if you said that you had a 777 square foot house and you rented out a room to somebody else, that sounds not doable. Like a lot of people wouldn't want to have done it because there was no, you know, when somebody was there, like I had my bedroom for privacy, but the bathroom was shared, the kitchen was shared, the living room was shared. So, um, yeah, it is definitely something that a lot of people probably wouldn't want to do, but it's also the reason that I am where I am today and financially free and not working a W-2 anymore. So it's the sacrifices for the few years that really allowed me to escalate and, uh, and get to where I am now. So. Wow. So do you mind if I dig, dig a little deeper on your first one? Yeah, this go one, ahead. This is really interesting to me. So, all right. So how do you, how do you be okay with, you know, a random stranger coming and living in with you? Is there like a, a process that you go through to make sure that they're 
not gonna murder you while you're sleeping <laughs> no and that was always like the question and the concern is like especially with my mom and uh and stuff it was just like how do you know like how do you know these people are safe blah 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 right. and you know with airbnb you you sort of have and you can and you could choose on airbnb that the only people that could stay with you had to have a review so like there was definitely a learning curve for me in that um with just figuring out some of the airbnb requirements and adjustments that you could make but i definitely tried to have um somebody that had a review but it was also it was very clear, like, you know, in my listing is this is a bedroom in my home. Like this is where I live. So when people right. see that, I think it's, they know that they're sharing space with, with people. So they're not looking right. to be like, okay, awesome. I'm going to have this house and I'm going to throw a big party. It's right. they're getting just a bedroom and the rest of the space is shared. So I think that definitely attracts a different person and somebody that knows like, this is not like, they're not going to be having a bunch of guests over and parties and stuff. And, uh, you know, overall there was one, I had one like somewhat minor incident with a guest, but otherwise like I had, I had great guests. We had a lot of fun. Um, some of them. So I, uh, I was, I don't know if I want to say I was lucky. I think just the Airbnb and the nature of how I was renting it. Like I said, I was getting people that, knew that it was a shared space and it was my personal home. So. Okay. Okay. And you were like one of the pioneers, I think in Airbnb, like in 2000, would you say 16 or 17? Yeah. So, and, uh, so you, you, you did that for a while and then what was kind of your, your next phase in your, in your journey? So we did that for a couple of years and then okay. in 2020, that's when we really started. Um, I met my husband in 2017. So actually, as I was buying my house, I met my now husband and he owned oh, a few congratulations. Yeah. So he met, um, he owned a few properties at the time, three duplexes and we, you know, obviously got together. He moved in. We actually added an apartment in the basement. So we didn't, rent the bedroom anymore we rented the basement in the apartment and that was to a long-term tenant and then in 2020 is when we really started buying we bought our current primary house that we also house hack still um and we bought another duplex in colorado yeah we bought i think it was like five or six properties within we we added like 12 or 14 doors we sold a couple properties since but um, within like a two, roughly like a two year span. And that's what really allowed us in house hacking those. So the current house we live in, we house hack, we moved again, yeah. move, uh, we moved in, lived in a triplex house hack to triplex wow. for a period. So we were willing to kind of make those sacrifices and do those moves. It was, I mean, at one point we moved a little more than expected. I think we moved like three times in six months, which was not a part of the plan, um, but it just sort of ended up going that way because we moved into the triplex and yeah. we were living in one unit and, and it was a complete remodel. So like we moved everything into one unit and then as we finished the other ones, like we moved into the, and we just kept like moving from one to the other as we were finishing them and renting them. Um, 
so you so you're so you buy a triplex and it's the whole thing is kind of junky you go live in the junky room and then yeah. the other two rooms are getting remodeled yeah and then once once one of the rooms is nicer then you go move into the nice room and then you go remodel the junky room yeah so we yeah so we the that one had a one bed one bath which is the one that we were going to be living in so we moved into that one first as we were remodeling it and then we moved into another one of the units rented out the one bed one bath moved into one of the other units that was like a three bed two bath um and at that point we knew that we were going to be moving back to our house that we were in uh the plan was to live there for a year but things changed we ended up only uh, after about six months of owning it, we ended up moving back to Salt Lake, but we moved out of the one bed into the other front one. And then once that one was, our house was ready, we moved back to our house, rented out the one that we were living in. So there was, there was a lot of moving around and it was definitely a pain living in construction zones definitely sucks. It is not a fun thing, but again, like for those few years of really sacrificing and living in living in construction zones and moving constantly allowed us to to build and buy and the equity in those properties has allowed us to keep buying other assets so okay so how did you buy how did you buy did so, you uh, yeah did so you the first house that i bought was first time home buyer so got that uh, primary residence with first time home buyer. I was able to do that with like 3% down program, but then the lending that I got actually paid for almost all of my um, down payment and I had really good credit. So I was even able to buy out my PMI for, I think it was like 3,200 bucks. And even some of the lending credit went towards that. So I think total out of pocket, I was like 30, I'd have to look, but it was right around like 3200 3100 for to get into my first property um and then the other ones that i've house hacked have also been primary residents which is a benefit because we've gotten better financing and better interest rates so the triplex our interest rate on that is is in the i think that one's in the low threes like 3.1 or 3.2 oh, wow. um so that's the other advantage of house hacking is being able to get that primary residence interest rate. And now, as you may know, like on two, three and four unit properties, you can get them with 5% down, which is really, really good as opposed to where it used to be 15 to 25% pending which program and, and stuff you went with. But, um, but when we were house hacking, it was based on my W2 income. Um, so we were able to get those conventional mortgages with my W-2 income. Okay. So because I'm, because I'm in the military, I've always just used the VA loan mm -hmm. when I when bought my primary residencies. So maybe you can educate me a little bit. What is that thing that you were talking about? You said primary residence. What was it again? So just a primary residence. So as opposed to like an investment loan. So yeah. now when we go and buy a property, we're buying it, you know, a DSCR loan, commercial loan, pending, you know, pending what the asset is, is sure. how we're financing it. So just the primary residence, it's just basically getting a loan where they know that you're going to be living in the property. So it's the same as the VA, like the VA is for, I mean, you can buy investment properties with it, but um, you just typically, when you're living in the home, you're going to get better financing. You're going to get better interest rates. So just when it's your primary residence, 
that's just the the difference as opposed to an investment property where you're not living in it and you're going to be typically paying a higher interest rate for those okay. those mortgages. So with the VA loan, it says in there that we're supposed to move in with the intention to stay there for 12 months. Is that the same with these other loans? It is. Yes. So the okay. intention. So we had to actually write. Actually, I think with the exception of my first one, the other ones we did, we always had to write a letter. Um, but we we had to do a little more pushing when we moved because the house that we were living in, that we're currently living in, you know, it's a single family home. It does have a basement apartment, but it's 15 minutes away from where my W-2 used to be. And then we were moving out of that to move 45 minutes away into a triplex. So the lenders were just, you know, why are you doing this? So we had to write a letter just saying, you know, we're real estate investors. We house hack. This is what we do just so they knew. And we did, we had to sign something saying that at any point within the first 12 months, they could come and do a random inspection to make sure we're actually living there. Um, if oh, asking yeah. a lender, I'm like, does that ever happen? He says, I've never known anyone that this has happened to. But it is something that, you know, we signed, give peace of mind to the lender. And we did intend to live up there for the full 12 months. But things changed and people moved around and stuff. So we ended up coming back after about six months. But yeah, as long as you're intending to live there for, for 12 months, that's what they're looking for, even with, you know, the conventional financing that, that I did. So if they okay. know you're doing it as an investment, then they're going to charge you more. But Okay. So, uh, so right now I'm currently I'm renting, um, but I have an investment property, but I've been looking at this fourplex that's like really junky and it's super tiny and there's no way that I would actually go move in there with, uh, me supporting seven people total. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so can I go buy that triplex or fourplex and not live in it? I mean, legally, with the VA, with the legally, VA loan. Well, you can buy, like, you can use your VA to buy an investment loan. So you like go talk to a lender. I'm not a lender, so I cannot yeah. give you any actual advice. But talk to a lender. I mean, that VA, and if you still have those benefits for the down payment yeah. and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I have known people that have gone and gotten those loans or gotten the primary residence and never moved into the house, never intended to. It's yeah. definitely a risk. And definitely if you're signing something saying, yes, I'm moving into this, you get some, you get into some legal areas there, some, uh, yeah. some potential issues. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I would definitely talk to a lender and see if you can use your VA to, to buy the investment property. Cause yeah, I don't think I could ethically just tell a bank that I'm going to go move in there and then go buy something and then not move in there. That's just personally, I think that's a bad idea. Yeah, but that's something. I was asking the question just to ask the question. Yeah, I we've never done that, nor do we intend on doing that. Like, that's just same. Like, the ethics side of things just don't, not something you want to do. And then just the liability and the risk. And then that, there, you know, if you do get caught, that ruins your relationship with that lender. So, if you know, we're using local lenders. So if we were to do that and they were to find out, like they probably wouldn't lend to us again, or it, they might make it more difficult or something like that. So it's just for us, it's not worth the risk, but there are people that have and do do that, but that is not something that 
we do or that we would advise doing, but right. um, it's kind of that, what are the odds of them catching you? And if that's a risk you're willing to take, but for us, not something that we would want to risk doing. Yeah. I, I don't, I wouldn't do that either, yeah. which is why I haven't done it, but um, it's always kind of a temptation for me, you know, cause it would be so amazing if I could just go buy a house with 0% down with the VA loan. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, like I said, talk to a lender. There might be options that you can do that you can still get some good benefits and buy it as an investment property. Yeah. So. Okay. That's good to know. Is there is there a loan where you can buy a property and you tell the bank that you're planning on renovating it and fixing it up? And they they do they pay you money to pay to fix to fix it at all? Is that a thing? Yes. Yeah, you can definitely uh, work with lenders that will, you know, you'll, they'll give you the purchase price and then they'll give you a, some or all of the construction costs and every lender will be a little differently on how that works. Normally, they're going to want to see what's your, you know, they're going to want to see bids and they're going to want to know like what your expected cost is to, um, to renovate and what your total Cost will be for that. So then they can analyze and like, okay, you're buying a property for 400,000. It's going to cost you a hundred thousand to renovate. And at the end, it's going to be worth 700,000 because they want to make sure that that ARV and then that loan to value once you're done is still where they need it to be. And that you're not, you know, you're not paying 400,000, putting a hundred thousand into it and making it 500,000. And now your property is only worth 450 because you way yeah. overdid it or something. So they're going to be looking right. at that, but there's absolutely, and those are, those are pretty easy to find ones that will work with you on getting you the construction costs with your loan. And some of them will make you double close. So you close on the original loan and then you do the construction side and you have to pay closing costs again, which is not ideal. Other ones will um, let you kind of convert it and have a new, so you don't have to pay closing costs, the full closing costs twice. So every lender is going to be a little different. But yeah, there's definitely lenders that you can use that will also lend you the construction costs for sure. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. How did you guys pay for your construction costs? Um, a combination of private money lenders, money that we had. You know, I had, you know, I was making good money in my W-2. So, and we were living for very cheap and we were just saving and dumping almost everything we had into the rental properties. My husband's also a GC. So he was okay. able to do a lot of the work. We hired out some things, but he was able to do a lot of it, which definitely, definitely saved us being able to do that sweat equity. And I would also, when I had a W2, I wasn't able to help as much, but definitely I was also being, being able to help on the construction side of things at times. Um, but yeah, the private money lenders and money that we had that we had saved up were, were the main ways that we were and pulling equity out of our, our assets. We pulled HELOCs out against our properties. We would do cash out refinances against them. Uh, we sold. So the first house that I bought, we sold that and were able to put all that equity that we made towards other properties and other renovations and stuff. So the, the equity and properties was probably the biggest way that we did it and private money lenders second and our own money was third. Okay. Did you guys ever think about doing those, those loans that you were just talking about where the bank will give you 
money to buy a house and renovate it? Yeah, we looked into some of those and for us, the way that things were falling and, and things like that, they, they weren't as great of a deal. So when we were buying, some of them we buying with a hard money loan, which again, like you're paying, you're paying the closing costs for that and typically higher interest. We were, I feel like we were getting pretty good interest. We're paying 10% for our hard money loans. And then we'd refinance out into long-term debt after that. Uh, the lenders that at the time that we were finding that were offering with the construction built in weren't, weren't as good of a deal for us. And the, for us at the time, the hard money loans were better or private money lenders. So, Okay. So the numbers just worked out. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right. So you're pulling equity out of your old deals, putting it into new deals, slowly building, and you're just living like a, a poor person, I guess, <laughs> living within your means and just slowly growing and growing and growing. That sounds, that sounds, uh, that sounds awesome. Do you think, yeah. um, go ahead. I was say it was definitely a a chaotic couple years, and yeah. we look back and we we try to always write like a year in review. And yeah. like the the last year that I had a W two, and we were writing our year in review, and I'm just writing, I'm like, Jesus, I'm like, of course we were burnt out. I'm like, holy crap, like all the stuff that we were doing to prep for me to quit the W two and get us ready and get the cash flow where we needed and stuff. It was it was a lot, but um. But yeah, it was it was well worth it. It was it was definitely chaotic, but it was fun in a a non fun way. I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was it one of those things that was just really hard that you could look back on and were proud of type of thing? Is that the fun oh, that yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I look back and it's I don't know many people that would have done what we did, especially the living in construction zones. I mean, the house that we live in now. I mean, for nine months we didn't have a kitchen. Like we had a camper that had this little tiny sink that like our plates didn't even fit into. And it was, it was a long, a long road of, of living in construction zones and stuff, but we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't change anything. It got us to where we are. And we, we learned so much along the way and have, have some good stories to tell. So it was worth it. Oh yeah. Do you have any, do you have any stories you want to share? Any, uh, any other good stories? So the house that, we always seem to be drawn to like the quirky old properties. And I think okay. it's like my, my husband is, I call him like the MacGyver of properties. And so a lot of people don't like old homes because they're old and they don't know what's going to break with them. They don't know what the issues are going to be. And he just yeah. looks at them as like a puzzle. So, okay. you know, some of the houses that we bought, the triplex we bought, um, that one had a meth lab in the basement and it had a shooting <laughs> out front. The current house we live in, this is probably my favorite one. This one also had a shooting in it. Also had people cooking meth in it. Um, oh, gosh. There, was a, there was a family that lived in it and they had passed away. They had a paraplegic son and their, whoever was the, the caretaker to their son, they were allowed to stay in the house. Well, the, the handicapped son had passed away and then the caretaker was just starting to get taken advantage of by friends, drug addicts. And when there was a shooting in the front yard, that's when the the family that was running the trust was like, okay, no, we're, we're done. You guys are out. We're selling it. 
so we buy it and it was a complete remodel and you know we had wires hanging everywhere walls are torn down we're just completely rechanging everything and i am working like boxes home depot boxes my computer balanced on it because we bought it march 13th of 2020 is when we closed people may recognize that month and year that's right when COVID hit so we bought it Mm -hmm. and within less than a week is when everything shut down and everyone went remote like that so i'm like balancing on my boxes and i see a cop pull up and i was like oh that's weird this cop parked outside and i see him walking up to our house and i was like oh interesting he's coming to our house so i answer the door and he kind of looks at me a little weird and he said uh does you know so-and-so live here and shows me a picture of a, a mug shot of a, a not nice looking male that was very large and i was like uh he definitely does not live here and he looked at me he's like so how long have you lived here i said just a few weeks i go do we have anything that we should be worried about and he's like no no just trying to you know locate this person i'm like are they going to be coming back to this house do we uh do we have yeah. to worry about that yeah and uh he's like no no you don't have to worry and i for a while, I was like, yeah, it's kind of hard not to worry if you're coming here searching for this person. Yeah. But, you know, they had moved out. They were gone. We never had any issues. But it was definitely a little uh, a little worrisome when they – and we still – we actually were getting, you know, you could see on the return address from the court system and the jail system and things like that. And I was like, just return to sender. <laughs> here. Like, yeah. yeah. Wow. Don't want to see. So yeah, that was that was a fun day. I was like, all right, cops are showing up. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, it kind of sounds like you guys were dumpster diving for houses, but you know, so you, you kind of had to like be brave a little bit to go live in those neighborhoods and so know, actually we were always buying the crappiest house on the street. So okay. we were always like the heroes of the neighborhoods we were going into. So like the house we live in now, it is like your average middle-class neighborhood. Everyone's super nice. Like when we moved in, all of the neighbor, we know like all of our neighbors because all of them are coming over and we're like so thankful that, you know, they had sold the house and they're like, you guys look normal. Thank goodness. And you're fixing it up. And same thing with the triplex. It was just your average, like just solid middle-class neighborhood. Everyone is really nice. The houses are all nicely maintained. And this was like the crappiest house on the street. And again, the neighbors and actually the house next to it that we bought afterwards, there was like two crappy houses left. We bought one of them. And then the next year we bought the next one. And the neighbors were like, yes, thank you. These are like the two last houses on our street. So we love finding the crappiest houses on the street and fixing them up. It, It helps the neighborhood. The neighbors immediately love you. We go and talk to them and it's uh it's always been been good so we definitely yeah because you're 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 making the neighborhood more beautiful and you're probably increasing the value of their houses too exactly especially the ones that are directly next to it like the one neighbor they're like it is so nice not to have giant eyesore or knowing that there's drug deals going on right next to me when i have my little grandkids coming to visit me so uh yeah it was it was a it was a low bar to get them to like us but uh really it didn't i mean almost anything's better than meth meth labs in your neighbor's house so it didn't (laughs) just a normal functioning human being was was a big step up so yeah sometimes that's just hard for 
people sometimes, even me sometimes, just being a normal human being. <laughs> as long as you weren't cooking meth, then you would have been a step above what was what was. That makes me feel so much better about myself. <laughs> I'm just gonna tell myself that when I have a bad day next time. Yeah. I'll just yeah. say I'm not I'm not cooking meth. So yeah. Um. Ooh, let's see. We have a question here. Let me pop. Let me pop the question in. Okay. Um. Varsha Shah said, what system do you have to handle contractors like timely completion of work, showing up every day, etc.? Uh, hi, Varsha. Uh, so I wouldn't say we had and this was and is still something that we are like trying to get better at and, and working on more where my husband was doing the majority of the work. Uh, when we would hire contractors, it would be for shorter things. Like the things we would always hire, hire out um, was drywall. And we had a really, really good drywall guy. So we were fortunate we don't really have to babysit him much. Like he'll come in, he'll take a look at the job, get an idea of what how much time he's going to need for it. But we don't have to check up on him. We don't have to make sure that something's going on. Um, so finding good contractors definitely makes things easy, but I wouldn't say like we, we don't use any system. We track things in Excel, which is definitely not the most efficient, but we also, we weren't flippers that were doing dozens of deals a year. We were typically working on one, one rehab at a time. So we knew that everything on the credit card was for that one property. So we didn't have to worry about like, okay, which property is this for? Cause we knew that everything is there. Um, and yeah, Varsha notorious and sometimes ripoffs. Yeah. And that's where John came in where he knew, like if somebody came in, he's, he's done every trade there is. So having that experience, if somebody came in and started saying that they were going to do something or whatnot, and it didn't, and John was like, no, that's not accurate. Like he would know. So we were fortunate to have that knowledge and experience and could kind of, called bullshit on people as they were talking about things or saying the way that they were doing things. Um, so, I mean, we definitely had times where we had issues with contractors. You know, there was one and actually at that triplex that um, was supposed to do work while we were gone and they just, you know, weren't showing up and be like, well, we went there and there is one cabinet left. And it's like, yeah, you take the cabinet out. Like that's your job. That's what we're paying you for. So, uh, to vet a good contractor, it's really trial and error. Like anything, like on any interview, people can interview really, really well. And you're like, yes, this is a slam dunk employee. And then they start working and you're like, where did this come from? Yeah. Um, you know, we, now we really try and any contractor that we don't already have a relationship with, which getting to where we were was just a lot of trial and error, finding people, hiring them, seeing if they work out how they were. I mean, the amount of contractors that we will never use again or subs is a long list of people just because you never know until you actually start working with them. Yeah. So for us, it was just a lot of a lot of painstaking, like anyone, any contractors. And it's still anyone you talk to that deals with contractors. Um, it really is just trial and error. But we really try and network now with other 
investors and ask them like, hey, who do you use? Who do you recommend? Because we really want to work with subs that work with investors. We don't want to pay retail. Like we can't pay retail. So working with other investors and just talking with other investors, that's where like our local RIA and networking has been really, really good because we've gotten some great recommendations on subs and we've been able to refer out our good subs to other people as well. So um, yeah, to vet them, it's really... If you don't have people giving you recommendations, it's really just trial and error and giving one a try. And if they work out, use them again. And if they don't, then the next job, just hire somebody else. So I wish there was, was a better way to know for sure that you're hiring this great contractor. But until you actually hire them and see their work, you never you can never be 100% sure. Yeah. Yeah. My parents are general contractors in Idaho, and they've been you know, growing their business for 25 years and it's taken them a long time to really get their people that they really like that are not just going to be there doing sheetrocking or plumbing for a couple of years, but people that are really serious in the business. Yeah. So and getting probably people, just takes time. It does. And we still, I mean, and you know, we have a property manager now and you know, we've, we're very happy with the property manager. We had a tenant complaining it's a three bedroom and they're complaining that one of the bedrooms wasn't getting hot enough and one of them was too hot. So they had an HVAC guy go over and he wanted to charge over a thousand dollars to run new ductwork to the bedroom that was too cold. And my husband was like, that seems a bit much like, and he was already up there in, in the neighborhood. So he popped in and he literally like closed the vent in the room that was too hot and it pushed more air to the room that was too cold and like adjusted a couple of the vents in the house because they were like well this room gets too hot too so it's like okay we'll close the vent and then it pushed more air to the other bedroom and it's like so sometimes the solution can be really simple and he's like yeah i'm not gonna pay a thousand like they don't need like there's already ductwork to run like yeah. running another one's not going to solve the problem so um yeah, there's still still times where we have to kind of be on guard with maintenance, but hmm. so just um, use your brain a little bit. Uh, yeah, a, a ridiculous amount. I, I sometimes like when I go to the um, to the to the car mechanic, it's like I don't know if this is real or not, and then I just trust them, but. Yeah. And then I pay money. That seems ridiculous. So, yeah. And it's very similar. It's like, you want to try and find a car dealer, you know, a car mechanic that you can trust. And it's same with contractors and Naomi with, you know, recommendations. One, I would get multiple quotes on, on everything. Um, you know, you never, you never know what one contractor will tell you and another. So if it's something major, I definitely would get at least three quotes, four quotes. And if you have somebody, like if you have a friend or if you start networking locally and somebody is a contractor, see if they'll come over and, you know, and just and maybe you have to pay them a few hundred bucks just to come and talk to the subs to make sure that what the subs are saying sounds right. But I would say get multiple bids because different people are going to explain things differently and tell, tell you different things that are wrong. And if you get three, four, five quotes and all of them kind of say the same thing, then you can probably have some confidence of this is actually the issue. But you also might find that one contractor is like, 
your whole house is going to fall down. You have to do X, Y, and Z. And another one's like, yeah, this is fine. Like you, you might get extremes, but the more you kind of have come and get quotes, you can kind of get a feel for what really needs to get done. But if you do know somebody or if you're networking with people, be like, Hey, can I pay you a few hundred bucks to come take a look at this or talk to the subs and make sure that what they're saying and I'm not getting ripped off. So. Cool. Well, thank you, uh, Varsha and Naomi for asking questions. Oh, we got Mike Moore. And he says, yes. is, wait, is he related to you? He is. That's my father-in-law. <laughs> oh, okay. First rule, never pay a contractor his total fee up front before any work is done. One that demands you to do is flying a red flag. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that is, you hear stories in so many times when people tell stories, it's they paid their contractor everything and then they never showed up or they got partway through and the contractor is like, well, you know, I need to pay my guys or I need to pay this. Like, can I get the rest of my money? And you pay in the rest of their money and then you never see them again. So yeah, don't, don't pay until the job is done and it's done to your satisfaction. So that's okay. it. That's good to know. Yeah. So let's keep on going with your, with your story. Okay. So you're, you're building, building, building. You are done with your W2. And when did you leave your W2? December, 2021. December, 2021. Yeah. And then what happened after that? You just kept on house hacking and growing and building. So we actually, so we, December 2021 quit. We were in process of rehabbing um, a property. We finished that in March, got it all rented in April um, and did nothing for like six months. We traveled, we took a couple road trips. Um, we just stepped back and just didn't really do anything work related. Just had fun, relaxed. We were so busy. We just kind of needed to decompress. And yeah. then that fall, we started to get back into real estate. Um, we learned what a re I didn't, we didn't know what a RIA was, Real Estate Investor Association. So that's like a, a group. They have a national RIA, but then states will have their local RIAs. Um, learned, I think we had just learned about Bigger Pockets at that time. Um, went to our first Bigger Pockets conference where we learned about Pace Morby and Sub 2, and that's when we signed up for that. Um, and that's when we were like, okay, we're, we sort of felt like we were not starting over, but kind of a fresh start where we, you know, we had our properties that were supporting us and we were like, okay, this is a time where is there something else within real estate that we may want to do? Like, as everyone knows, there are so many shiny objects within real estate. I mean, even if you decide I want to focus on multifamily, even within that, there's so many different avenues that you can go. So we were like, well, let's kind of take the time to see, hey, is there something else that we may want to do within real estate? Um, so for probably, I don't know, six, eight, 10 months, we really just kind of explored other avenues and tried to learn about different things. But ultimately, it came back to, okay, multifamily, that's, it's what we know, it's what we enjoy. And so the last several months, that's really what we've been focusing on. Um, we bought a fourplex uh, just oh, about wow. a year ago. Wow. We're closing on a duplex next month. Um, is it next cool. month? Yeah. Yeah. The end of, end of February, that one we're buying 100% seller finance. 
Really? So those are the ones that we're, we're trying to find. Last year, we didn't spend as much time looking for deals. We right. did a lot of education and really just figuring out like what we want to do. And so we didn't achieve our goals of buying properties in the financial side of things, mm -hmm. but we really honed in what we wanted to do. And we built a really good foundation and like looking back, it was frustrating not finding deals, but we also weren't looking that much, but what we did accomplish of really narrowing in on, on what we want to focus on, knowing what we want to do and building that foundation has put us in a much better place where now we're, we're really starting to build out our systems. We're focusing on multifamily up to 50 unit assets here in Utah. So we're in a much better position now to really start, start buying, looking for deals. They're still hard to find. Um, but you know, the, we found that duplex will close on that next month. And we really just want to keep, keep trying to find those, those properties, but we're 2024 will hopefully be a, a better year for finding deals and sellers getting more realistic on, on what their properties are worth. So. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I'm, I'm excited to hear all these things for you. Yeah. Um, so to me, it seems like a really wide range between a duplex and a 50 unit um, complex. So like for me, I'm, I'm looking for, I, I do assisted living facilities. I'm more interested in that, that business. And I'm more of a stick, stay above 50 doors type of thing and partner with multiple people. So what, what's your thought on a duplex? To me, that's a wide range. Can you kind of tell me what your thought, thought process is on, on your your buy box yeah so really what we are going to focus on for the next six eight ten months and see how it goes is you know that generation that boomer generation is a lot of people have probably heard the amount of wealth that that generation has that will be you know passing on their assets whether that's rental properties or businesses you know you hear you know cody sanchez talks about buying boring businesses from that generation because there's so many, so many assets and so much wealth that's in that generation that's going to be getting passed down. So we're actually going to really try and niche down and focus on, you know, people in their 60s, 70s and 80s that are looking to be done with managing their properties or ready to just fully retire, enjoy life, enjoy their kids, their grandkids, whatever they want to do. Um, so we're looking for those mom and pop landlords that are ready to to sell and hopefully ideally sell with seller finance because they want to continue to get that monthly income without the hassle and the work of having to actually own it so that's what we're really going to focus on and see if we can uh kind of capitalize on that market there's a lot of assets in that range within utah and a lot of opportunity so we really want to niche down and kind of hit that hard and see what uh see what we can do but those those mom and pop landlords it, a lot of people want to go big right away and they don't want right. to do that and it's kind of this in between that a lot of people don't want because it's it's not big enough to have in-house management so the, either, they're like the fourplexes and any even up to a 50 unit really okay. like most of the time like once you're getting 7500 units and more then you're seeing the people hiring, you know, the, the in-house management that's on site. So yeah. you get to that like 10, 20, 50 unit asset. People don't really want to, 
a lot of people don't want to deal with them because either they're managing them themselves or you're having to rely on a property manager. Um, and then it's, do you have a good property manager? Can they handle that business and stuff? So it's kind of that in between that a lot of people don't want to deal with where we, we don't mind that we, we have a good property manager at some point, I'm sure we'll probably hire somebody for our, on our team that does our property management. But until we get to that point, you know, we have a property manager that's really good. They work with us, you know, anytime we're kind of underwriting a deal and looking at stuff, we're working with them on what our, you know, what potential rents would be. And we'll, we would work with them on if it's low vacancy or needing to rehab, um, you know, they're very good at scheduling things out and making sure that they're working with us to get things filled and stuff. So, um, yeah, that, that generation has, has a lot of assets that we want to, to try and buy up from them. So acquire. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's, that's very smart. And a lot of them don't really know what to do with all of their money and stuff, except put it into the stock market. Um, and what you said too is true with, with businesses. I know my, my parents are, are baby boomers and they, they're trying to figure out who's going to carry on their legacy. And I think a lot of them care about their legacy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, how, go ahead. No, finish your question. Go, go ahead. So how, how are you going about doing that? Just curious. So we actually, were actually just meeting, had a meeting right before this about that. Um, and that's something we're still working on, like how to market to them because and most people don't want to sell their property to Wall Street. They don't want a Blackstone coming in. So we're just trying to think of ways to market that sets ourselves apart from your Blackstone type, you know, investors that are just going to come in and they care about their, you know, the the owners, the current owners, a lot of them, like they care about their tenants. And that's something when we're talking to them, you know, my husband is asking like, you know, what about your tenants? Like, what would you want to see happen with your tenants? And he was just talking to a woman that owns a place. And she's like, you're the first person that has ever asked me what I want to have happen to my tenants or what's, what's my biggest concern with my tenants. So it's yeah. just showing like, you know, we, we don't want to come in and just, you know, be these emotionless, heartless buyers. So having the, the communications with them on what our plan is and, you know, Hey, like we'll name the property, you know, rename the property after you and do whatever. Just thinking of ways that are going to show them, like, we want to build this, like, this is us building this company. And we, you know, we're, we're two individuals that are just trying to get to where they are. You know, they own those properties. Like we want to be them when we're their age owning these properties and, having this asset. And it's amazing how many people we talk to that their kids don't want them. I mean, there was a fourplex that was for sale here and it was actually the grandson that had it listed. And he's like, yeah, it's my grandparents' property. They have seven other ones, but like nobody in my family wants them. So they just want to sell them. And I'm like, do you guys <laughs> realize like, yeah, and you're crazy. an agent and you're not even wanting them. Like it just is oh. kind of baffling that like, the amount of people we talk to where nobody in their family wants them. Wow. And it's just like, how can you not like, do you realize what you're like saying no to? Yeah. So it's, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah it was, it's kind of 
baffling on that side of things, but, but yeah, but yeah, we're working on the marketing and how to get in front of that generation and what's the things that are going to attract them. And, you know, we really want to educate them as well. Um, and it's, you know, not just, we don't want to just come and be like, Hey, we want to buy your property. It's like, what problem are you having with your property right now? And that might result in us not buying it. It might be as simple as, Hey, like, here's our property manager. Like, this is going to be a much better fit for you. And this is going to be what you need. Like, you don't need to sell if, you know, you, your kids do want it or whatever. Like, you just need a property manager or, you know, just working with them to figure out, like, what are their pain points with their property and how can we help them solve that? Like, that's really what we want to get in and, and talk to them and, and see what we can do. Obviously, hoping that in a lot of situations it'll result in us buying them. But if it doesn't, then you know, whatever way we can help them is what we're really, really aiming to do. And the, the angle that we want to come is what are your pain points and how can we help yeah. you solve them? Yeah. I think that's definitely a really good approach because if you come into that, it starts, you know, if you, if you take that approach, I feel like people build that like emotional bond with you. And once you have that, you know, emotional tie with somebody and there's that trust, then it just makes everything easier. I think after that. Yeah. And I mean, we get so many postcards and like every postcard, every mailer, everything that we get, it is just like, we want to buy your house. We'll offer you cash. We'll give you the best deal. And it's like, I don't even enjoy, like, I just throw them out. I'm like, no, oh, like yeah. there's nothing granted. We're also not looking to sell, but like, it's just, I don't know, we, we want to really, you make that emotional connection and then that's a much better, a much better way to build a relationship and you're going to be able to get a lot more from that person and hopefully be able to, to really help them in whatever avenue with their property that ends up going. Yeah, for sure. For so, sure. well, thank you so much for sharing all, all of this uh, value with, uh, yeah. with the audience and I appreciate the audience for participating and asking questions that always makes me very happy to see see people interacting um on my on my little little show here um can we get into maybe some like mindset things that maybe you've you've learned along the way because not everybody is willing to go live in a little shithole for years <laughs> in little construction slash war zones for like five years at a time, what was something that you think helped you get through that? Um, for me, it's, it's looking at the end goal and it's looking at where we want to be. And I would much rather be uncomfortable for lack of other terms for the several years to get us to where we're going to be in a much better life than we ever would have been if I stayed in my W2. Like I made very good money in my W2, but you still have a cap with a W2. Like real estate is endless. You can, there's, there's no limit to how much money you can make in real estate. So for us, it was like, while we're in those situations, it was just, okay, this, like, here's our end goal. Like we know what we're working towards. We know why we're doing this. And that was, you know, for us, that's a big motivating factor. Freedom of time is even when I had a W-2 and it would be, you know, yearly reviews and stuff like that, I'd be asking for more vacation time over more money. 
So yeah. for us, like our freedom of time is it's priceless. Like right. I don't want to spend my entire life you know, grinding at a W2 when we can sacrifice for a few years, get, you know, able to get out of the W2 and now we can, can do this and we'd love it. It doesn't feel like work. You know, we're basically obsessed with always talking about it and stuff like that, but yeah. you know, it's really like, what are you, what are your goals? And yes, it can be uncomfortable for a while, but for us, it was just like, okay, what's, what do we want out of life? What do we want? Like not, it's easy to, you know, try and, well, this person has this, or this person does this and stuff like that, but really looking at yourself and what do you want and building your life. Like the book vivid vision was a really good book that hmm. basically it's, you know, write the five year in first person, like in five years where you want to be and writing yeah. out like what you want your life to look like. And for us, like to write that out with, you know, no limits of what our life looks like and having everything we want, like that is very motivating and knowing that we can spend our time however we want. It, for us, that was the motivation that we needed and, and having the discipline and the habits to to build to that and keep doing what we were doing, even though it, you know, it wasn't enjoyable, like, you know having no kitchen for nine months or living in right. a tiny space like was that ideal no like would i have preferred to have been living in a nice big house yeah but i'd rather have done those uncomfortable things knowing that the life we'll have in the future is way better than what it would have been if i stayed in my w2 even though i was making really good money like right still never would have compared to what we're going to be doing with with real estate yeah yeah. So. Now, how did you and I I need to go read that book, by the way, the what's it called again? Viv Vivid, Vivid Vision. Vivid yeah. How, how did you and your spouse get on the same page about about your vision? Um, freedom of the, the, the freedom of time is definitely the number one thing that was yeah. like we definitely like bonded over. Um but we just, you know, we were fortunate that we, we do have very similar goals and things. Um, you know, the life that we want to live, yeah. we both, we love the outdoors and we love skiing and snowmobiling and dirt biking and hiking and backpacking and all those things. Like we, we definitely enjoy doing those things and love doing those things, uh, together. So as far as knowing that that was where we wanted to go and where the real estate was our future, that was fairly easy. Just we were lucky that we bonded over that. And that was something like when we met, he wasn't actively buying properties, but he was rehabbing and he was adding yeah. units to his and he was improving them. And I was just buying my first one. So, you know, we, I guess we were just sort of lucky to have both been in that real estate mindset so we didn't have to try and convince the other one that like, hey, real estate is really like what we should be doing and where we should be spending our time and where we should be spending our money. We both were already in that mindset and knew that that was the future that we wanted. And that was going to be what is going to give us the life that we really want to have. So that's cool. That's cool that you started that way. Um, now, now, you were saying to me on the phone, you know, last week that. A lot of people are un unrealistic with their expectations for 
leaving a W-2. And um, I, I was just a thought that I had in my mind was that for, for escaping a W-2, it kind of feels like escaping jail, right? But like, I think people have this expectation that they're going to become super wealthy and then they're going to escape their W-2. But I think it's kind of the opposite where you actually have to downgrade. And when you're escaping, you're living really meagerly. Um, and then you grow later. Is that kind of what your thought is? Absolutely. Like when we, you know, so many people when they're talking about leaving their W-2, it's I, I can't leave. Like I need to be able to replace my W-2 income. I need to replace all of my income. And I always challenge that. And are there situations where somebody needs to replace all of it? Yes. But then it's, what are your expenses? Like, do you really need all of those expenses? Do you have, you know, I mean, you get a car and so many people are driving around in 40, 50, $60,000 cars and they have seven, $8,000 a month car payments. And it's, do you really need both to have a brand new car with those car payments? Do you need to be living in the luxury expensive apartment? So you know, for us personally, it was, we were house hacking. So we were living, you know, the house that we live in now, our, our basement tenants pays like 93 or 94% of our housing expenses. Like it costs us a couple hundred bucks to live here. So for us, it was really looking at our budget and like, what are our expenses? What are our bare necessities? Like we needed a place to live, which was basically covered. We needed food. We needed health insurance, you know, our cell phone, but which is paid for by the business. So we really did, uh, in my background being financial analysis, we already knew all of our numbers. I'm very, very in tune with our budget and where all of our money goes. But we just really looked at like, what's the bare minimum that we need? You know, and, and if we decided that we never wanted to grow and we never wanted to do anything else, the properties that we have would, would give us a good life, but not the life we want. Like, I want to be able to travel all the time and... We want to be able to buy things, snowmobiles and dirt bikes and new skis and stuff without having to think about it. So for us, we were willing to take a step back for a few years to lose that W-2 income, which it's it's hard. Like that is when you're used to that steady, cushy life and that money coming in every month, knowing that it's, you know, it's supporting you and some, supplying you this nice life, like but the way we looked at it is like, I'm willing, I'm willing to travel less. I'm willing to not be able to buy as much. I'm willing to have to pay attention to our budget a lot more for, for a few years, knowing that it's going to get us a life that we never have to worry about what we're spending our money on. We don't have to worry about, Oh, I don't, I can't buy this hundred dollar thing or this thousand dollar thing. Like it's, it's something where if you really do want to leave your W-2, I think if you really dig into your budget and what you actually need to survive. And we also are willing to give up like putting into retirement. Like I don't, we don't put into an IRA right now, but we're putting money into investments. So for me, like right. that is our 401k, that is our IRA, that is our investment, um, that is our future. So there's, there's things that we aren't doing anymore, but not putting away for a 401k, not putting as much into savings as I would like to be doing. Those are things that we are willing to give up and that we are willing to take a step back to be able to do the real estate full time. And yes, are we living the same caliber life that we were when I had a W-2? Not yet, but we're getting really close to being back at that same level. And within a couple of years, we are going to be so far past it that it's, 
we we know that in the end it's going to be well worth it but yeah looking to leave your w2 i just always challenge people do you really need to replace all of your income or is there a way that you can cut back and not need to replace all of it and and live a a less glamorous life less frivolous less uh, lavish life for a few years to set you up for a much better future yeah so I, I totally love everything that you're saying. Um, and I, I think I've told told my story to you a little bit, but I'll just kind of steal the stage for a second. So I'm I'm a doctor, right? But I decided to leave medicine. And one of the th- one of the things that helped me get through that is a line from um, Fight Club. And have you seen that movie Fight Club? I have. It's been a while. I mean, that came okay. out in the nineties. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> so he says in there, um, it's only until you've lost everything that you're free to do anything. And so I, me personally, in order to go on a different path and be willing to do the sucky things to get there, I feel like I had to be willing to let go of my golden handcuffs of this steady job as a doctor. Um, and I've talked to other physicians and they're like, yeah, I'm really kind of burned out of medicine. But then I'm like, it wouldn't be that hard to earn $300,000 a year and live meagerly and save like $20,000 a month or $10,000 a month. Um, but I think doctors are probably the worst at living in that golden hamster wheel um that it's hard to get out of just i think i think mentally i think that you know that phrase it's only until you've lost everything that you're free to do anything i think it's a there's this weird emotional tie that people are just so tied to money that it's hard to like break that tie in order to quit their w2 yeah well and then there's the lifestyle creep like you know, when you have a W-2 and as you're, as you're making more money and you're getting your raises and you're getting your bonuses, you know, when I had mine, every time I'd get a raise or a bonus, 90% of that money would go into some sort of savings. It would go into towards travel or retirement or something. Like I wasn't moving into more expensive places. I wasn't getting a more expensive car. Like, you know, I, I, I could have, but I didn't want to be spending my money on that where a lot of people it's, Oh, I'm making a few hundred bucks more. Like I can move into a better apartment. I can move into, I can go and buy a nicer car. And so then you get to the point where your, your expenses, like in a, in a, a direct way, like you do need to keep making that much money. But if you were to take a step back and be like, okay, I can move into a smaller place. I can get a different car. I cannot eat out. I mean, the amount of money that people spend eating out and going to bars and stuff like that is, insane it's so much money if you look at what you really spend that on i mean i know people that are dropping a couple thousand bucks a month on eating out and going to the bars and i'm like do you know what you could be doing with that much like yeah it's just so valuable and the other thing that when you're looking if people are looking to quit a w2 and was going through mine it was like okay what what is my best case, worst case? So my worst case scenario is obviously, yes, you can be really, really extreme and like, hey, I'm going to, you know, 
lose everything and all my houses are going to burn down. People are going to sue me, whatever. Like the odds of that are very slim. The realistic worst case is it doesn't work out. We don't end up buying properties. We don't increase our cash flow. Like my, my worst case scenario is I have to go back and get a W-2. And it's like, okay, so my worst case scenario is being back where I was at that point in time. So yeah. when I like thought of it that way where, okay, if I like, I'm in a W-2 now, my worst case is being back here. Like it was all upside. Like I was willing to take that risk to, yeah. to, to make that jump knowing that, okay, worst case, I just have to go get a job again. And once you, in my opinion, like once you quit and you get a taste of that, like, I don't have to go to work every day, like to a, to a company and I don't have to report to a boss and I don't have to ask if I can have vacation time. And I don't have to worry about, it. I only have two weeks or three weeks of vacation. Like there is almost nothing like my husband and I joke, I'm like we will move back into our like 20 square foot camper in the bed of our truck and live in that and rent out this place before we ever go back to a W2. Like I, we will do anything and everything before we go back to a full-time job. But when that's your worst case scenario, like to me, it's just all upside. And if you have to, you know, if worst case scenario happens, okay, you go back, you get a W2, you kind of reposition yourself. And if you really want to try, then you build up again and then you quit again. Like just because you don't achieve it the first time, doesn't mean you're not going to the next time. Like you're, right. you're always going to mess up. You're always going to make mistakes. You're always going to fail in some way, but it's making sure you're learning from those and always leveling up and picking yourself up and be like, okay, how did I mess up that time? What did I learn from that? What skills did I just gain? What resources did I just gain? And what am I not going to do going forward? So I think there's That's awesome. Uh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that, Lisa. Well, thank you so much for sharing. You're you're an inspiration uh to me. I hope I can be where you're at um one day. Um yeah. I'm gonna have to talk to my wife about maybe go live in a little crappy, crappy place with like green carpet or something like that. <laughs> but we uh I, I'm not house hacking currently, but we have a lot going it's we have a lot going on. But um yeah. I'm going to start looking, looking at some options because of this conversation. Yeah. Look but, for a house that has a little ADU. So you guys can still have yeah. a house, but you can rent out a little ADU or have something above the garage or. That's a good idea. There, There's always ways. And there's even ways to house hack that don't involve renting out your space. There's a website called Peer Space. You have a cool backyard. You have a pool. You have something like you can rent out space. People come and do photo shoots or to do kids swim lessons in your pool because they don't have a place really? to do it. Like, there's so many other ways to generate revenue from your house. Renting out your garage as a storage unit, putting a shed in your backyard, renting that out as a storage unit. Like there's so many other ways to generate revenue from your property that doesn't necessarily involve you having another human being living on your property or in your house. So, okay. So I try not to go over an hour, but. Where we're going, you're you're digging into some stuff. So I'm just, <laughs> I just keep on going because I have all these self doubts. I'm like, I can't do that because we have we have I, so I have four kids mm -hmm. plus my wife works. We have a we have an it's called an au pair. Yeah, she's a Colombian 
that lives with us that takes care of our kids because my wife works and and I work. Um, and so I'm like, I have no idea how to like bring everybody into a little somewhere crappy to go move into. Well, but, it doesn't have to be somewhere crappy. Like, do you okay. have, you know, if you have space in every state is different in what you're allowed to do. If you can build an ADU, if you can't, but like, do you have space on your place? You know, if you were to buy a house that has space or already has an ADU, you know, you can still have the house that you need, but see if something has an ADU or has okay. the space you could build one or, you know, just being creative in other ways to generate revenue from, from where you live. So, so like I have a two car garage that's empty and we don't have, we don't really use it. You say there's a way to rent it. I can rent out my garage as a storage unit or really? if somebody needs a shop. Somebody loves to woodwork and they don't and they live in an apartment and they don't have the space to do that. If you've got power in your garage, you can post it up. Garage for rent's got this power and you know what it has. You know, somebody may want to rent that. And there's a lot of people that don't have space where they live, they, they live in an apartment they live in a small house or they don't have a garage that wants that space and would love to have access to that and be able to do whatever hobby is that they have, or if really? they have a little shop or whatever, like, and be able to rent that. So. Okay. So what about, so my, I have a backyard that's pretty big, but we don't use it at all either. It's fenced in. There's like a really nice walking path behind us because we're in Virginia and there's lots of trees and that's just, that's just our situation. So is there anything I can use, do with the backyard you said? I mean, I'd go into peer space and see the different things. I mean, people are looking for places to do photo shoots or, you know, host events or parties or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, I mean, hmm. you, you never know what somebody's going to be looking for and be like, I want to have an outdoor birthday party. I want to have an outdoor meetup or whatever it is. And if you have enough space, like, could you build an ADU? Could you put a little studio apartment back there that you could then rent out to somebody? So the, in, in Utah, at least, you can build an ADU now on on your property you can put that legally build that and be able to get the revenue from that so every state is yeah. different check with your local laws but yeah. the ADUs are definitely something that a lot of states are now allowing and it's something that you can can do legally so if that's something that in your area you can legally do and you have a space you can do that but you know that that peer space man you go on there and it's like i never would have thought to rent something for that or really like doing photo shoots by a pool or like I said, and swim lessons stuff. Like there's so many different ways that people have thought of to generate income. And for those things, like you're talking about a couple hours. So somebody's yeah. coming, they're having a party for a few hours. They bring everything, they take everything with them or they're doing a photo shoot or whatever, you know, whatever they may need. We have, to do. We have a covered back patio. Yeah. With the, and big, that, with the big backyard. Yeah. Someone may want to throw a birthday party there or, film something like there's 
there's just so many ways that you can generate revenue from your property. And you go on, like as that pure space website, like you go on there and take a look at what people are renting. It's just like, man, holy moly. So I would definitely look at that and you never know what you'll see. And you're like, Oh, my place would be perfect for that. So in your garage, using your garage storage unit, I mean, people pay so much for storage units and to have something where there's going to be the power. And if they are some sort of woodworker or whatever trade thing that they like to do, like that's definitely another avenue that you could be, you know, generating some revenue from and renting that out. Oh gosh. Okay. All right. I'm going to go make some, make some more money, Lisa. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, I will let you go. Um, thanks everybody for joining. So I will see you next week. Thank you, Landon. This was excellent. Thanks, Lisa. All right.